0: Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why, I'm Jeff Sheckman. Some of you may remember that during the Cold War, particularly during the Vietnam conflict, we were told that the battle was for the hearts and minds of the enemy. We understood that in conflict, propaganda, particularly as told through narrative, was an important tool of warfare. The narrative, if successful, was there to reinforce the battle. The ultimate expression of this, I suppose, was the phrase sometimes attributed to both John Wayne and Chuck Colson, that if you have them by the balls, their hearts and minds will follow. Today in our 24-7, always-on, social media-saturated world, the object has changed. Now the battle through social media and television is for the proverbial hearts and minds as an object in and of itself. As we've seen with Russia in both the Ukraine and in its new Cold War with the U.S., sometimes control of the Twitter and Facebook narrative is enough to create disruption, to change the terms of the conflict itself, and ultimately to win. Suddenly in Cold War 2.0 a keyboard has as much power as an F15. We're going to talk about this today with my guest David Patrick Ericus. He's the author of the book Nuclear Iran: The Birth of the Atomic State. He's also a contributing editor at The Daily Beast and a contributing writer at Politico. And he is an expert on how social media is reshaping conflict in the 21st century. David Patrick Eregos, thanks so much for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why.
1: Thank you for having
0: me on. Propaganda certainly has been around for, for as long as warfare has been around. But propaganda really was, was sort of a backstop. It was something that served the purposes of warfare. Now it's become kind of an end in itself, particularly in the social media world. Talk about that.
1: I think you're absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head, Jeff. Uh, look, propaganda is as old as war itself. But I think where the change has come is that in war, as traditionally understood, propaganda operations supported military operations on the ground. Now we are getting to a situation where, often—not always, but often—military operations on the ground are supporting operation, uh, propaganda operations in cyberspace and on TV. And I think a classic example of this, and this is where the genesis of my new book, "One War in 140 Characters," comes from, is the eight months I spent in Ukraine covering the war between Russia and Ukraine. Now, war, as is traditionally understood, if you want to call it, you know, the Clausewitzian paradigm. Karl uh, von Clausewitz, uh, you know, two or more sides would you know, have a fight in an area almost as delineated as a boxing ring, and the winner would then defeat the loser and impose a political settlement on them. A classic example is the Treaty of Versailles after World War II. Now, what I was seeing in Ukraine on the ground was something entirely different. Putin had no intention of defeating Ukraine and forcing it to the negotiating table, which he easily could have done. Instead, what he wanted to do was to destabilize the country, to stop it drawing closer to the EU. And the way he did this was to essentially get Eastern Ukrainians to subscribe to a particular narrative. So yes, he sent tanks and Russian troops across the border and supported um, uh, Ukrainian separatists. But the goal of this was actually just to create a space to allow uh, Russian propaganda to flow in, and this was it was truly remarkable, Jeff, as I went from city to city in the occupied territories, if you like, uh, people would repeat verbatim to me lines that I had seen coming out of the Kremlin on TV or on Facebook or on Twitter or on the contact to the Russian version of Facebook because they said you know, the belief that, for example, Kiev was a fascist hunter following the overthrow of uh, the Moscow back Yanukovych during the Euromaidan revolution, that Kiev wanted to destroy the speaking of Russia in Ukraine, that it wanted to persecute Russian speakers. These ideas were sincerely held. And in the end of the day, when your goal is not to defeat the enemy militarily, but to get them to subscribe to a particular narrative, obviously social media as a conduit, propaganda becomes the central goal. And what you see actually is the blurring of politics and conflict.
0: Isn't this something, though, that has long been the purview of dictators and strongmen and authoritarian rulers? To a degree, yes.
1: But we're talking about its role in conflict now, uh, and it's changing because conflict is changing. Now, if you think the, the post-World War II order was designed to regulate war out of existence, in the West at least, no major state, has gone to war against another state now you can argue that america went to war against iraq but actually the battle against saddam's military you know lasted days essentially it was nothing the real problem was the insurgency and the nature of warfare is changing in that states now like the united states like the united kingdom fight asymmetrical wars and what social media does it is it allows uh, the underdog to gain Power. And so asymmetric wars are not so asymmetric anymore. And you see examples of this, like the example I use in my book of Operation Protective Edge during 2014, where a, a country like Israel can decisively win the military battle, but in effect lose the war. Because the war is fought not to defeat Hamas, but essentially to put across the Israeli government's narrative. Yes, there were political there were there were military goals to, you know, to eradicate the tunnels, which they were fairly successful in, but ultimately that war came down to a clash of narratives. One side saying we are the democratic state under siege, the other state we are the oppressed peoples being oppressed by, you know, a US backed satellite colonialist power. And that in that space Israel lost, despite absolute military victory. And that is something that is fairly, fairly new.
0: To what extent is it about disruption as the first phase of this kind of warfare? In many ways, we can look at what's been going on with respect to Russia and the U.S. right now as as an example of that. that, that the object is less clear, but the disruption that it seeks to create is very clear, and the hope is that in that disruption, some kind of social media victory can be achieved.
1: Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, take the Russian example. What is so interesting about Russian propaganda is it's totally different from the propaganda of old and indeed traditional propaganda. Now, the Soviet Union, its propaganda was centered on presenting a positive image of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was the ideal society. It was utopia realized on Earth. Russian modern Russian propaganda doesn't seek to do that at all. It doesn't seek to promote a positive image of Russia. Look, I'm sure ideally they'd like to. But I think they realize it's not possible, so they don't bother. So what they do is, you're absolutely right, is they disrupt. They confuse. They distort. And what is interesting about their propaganda? I'll give you an example. Take the shooting down of flight MH17 over eastern Ukraine, which we now know was uh, done by a book missile provided by the Russian military. I was in Ukraine during that time, and within minutes... Uh, of the news breaking, the Russian trolls were out in force saying uh, the Americans did it, the Ukrainians did it, the Americans and Ukrainians did it. I mean, and the point wasn't to convince anyone by the content of, of these patently absurd narratives, but actually to confuse the narrative so much that anyone, you know, anyone with a normal life, not like you and me, Jeff, political obsessives, you know, who's hoping to go on there and find out what, you know, what the hell was going on, was totally confused, and this is the goal, which is to create so much misinformation that you weaken people's ability to see the truth, to recognize the truth when they see it.
0: And that really is the object of this kind of propaganda, to completely distort reality, to eliminate any kind of objective truth.
1: You're absolutely right, and look, and this is what I say, you know, we live, you know, post-truth, it is a cliche now, but what post-truth has done is created the post-truth leader, and you see this all the way from Vladimir Putin to Donald Trump. Now, obviously, there are many problems with Trump, but let's not get carried away. Putin is a dictator in all but name. Trump is still, you know, the leader of the world's most powerful democracy. But in each case, the goal is the same, which is not to twist the truth like the politicians of old, but to subvert the very idea that an objective truth exists at all. And you see this. So we go from Bill Clinton... I did not have sexual relations with that woman, which is just a classic, straightforward lie, to Donald Trump or his spokesperson, who comes out and says Trump's uh, inauguration crowds were bigger than Obama's, when you can see, you can see that they weren't. And what happens when they're called out? Kellyanne Conway uh, appears and says, We're offering alternative facts. Not yet, alternative, no objective truth, alternative facts. So you're absolutely right. And this is dangerous, it's very
0: dangerous. And talk about the ways in which social media, as a tool then, reinforces those kind of alternative facts.
1: Well, again, this is a very good question. Now, the thing with social media is, it, by its very nature, it rewards sensationalism. It rewards, you know, the declarative, the exclamative. You know, and it works against nuance and thoughtfulness. So, you know, you can tweet, all Mexicans are rapists. And that's sensational. And it will go viral. When in fact, the truth is, we have immigration. Some people may not be very good, but the net balance on balance is positive because of X, Y, and Z. You can't do that on Twitter. You don't have the space. No one wants to read it. You know, there is nothing more depressing, Jeff, than even on Facebook, where you can say more than pressing, seeing a status and seeing see more and it opening up in another window. No one reads it to Facebook status of 10 paragraphs long. The point is these platforms are geared away from, you know, deep thinking, nuance, and geared towards the sensationalist and the simplistic. And this allows propaganda to flow because I call it the, chari- you know, the charisma of certainty. As I said, it is much better to say, you know, all Ukrainians are fascists than actually to say, well, you know, if we look at the situation on the ground, this is untrue. They, got, they did very badly in the elections. Yes, there are some hard right, You know, by the time you've done this in today's day and age, people have stopped reading. So I think social media, by its inherent architecture, helps propaganda spread. And, of course... Um, it, it, you know, in terms of the reach and speed and scope with which it can reach, you, I mean, back in the day, how would the USSR get its propaganda out? It would have a few useful idiots and fellow travelers in the West who might sell, you know, who might sell communist newspapers. But that was it. But it could, you know, now, if you go on Twitter, you can't move. You, depending on who you follow, you can't move for Russian narratives. You know, RT is pumping it out. Sputnik is pumping it out. There are trolls everywhere. So I think, you know, it's been a real game changer.
0: And to what extent is this creating individual radicalization out there?
1: Well, look, that's a very good question. And I think the, the answer here is to be found with ISIS. Now, if ISIS, ISIS is without doubt a social, a social media, like I say, Donald Trump is a social media president. ISIS is a social media terror organization. If they had emerged just even 10 years ago, it would have taken them 20 years to reach a quarter of the people that they reached. Now, this is a group that at one point was recruiting 10,000 people a week to its caliphate in Iraq and Syria, and that simply cannot be explained without social media. Uh, This is how people were recruited. Uh, This is how their message was spread. Obviously, they would, you know, make these horrific beheading videos which get picked up by the national media, but, you know, what really dragged people to the caliphate were actually the more positive videos showing, you know, giving people chances of agency, you know, essentially, you know, stay in Paris and drive a cab or come to Iraq and be a hero. So in terms of uh, of that, in terms of radicalizing, in terms of recruitment, the case of ISIS shows that is absolutely, again, changed the game. It's made it transnational. You can recruit someone to the caliphate without ever having even met them. And this, again, is is quite, quite novel. Certainly the speed and scope at which it is done is novel.
0: Talk a little bit about these troll farms, troll factories, what it is they do, and the impact that they have.
1: So, okay, so uh, I think it's actually quite surreal. So in my book, I interview a character called Vitaly, who's actually a fairly liberal Russian journalist, but lost his job and needed some work, wasn't quite sure what he was getting into, and it was literally and i used the the word in its correct sense a, a big a big building on a road in st petersburg it, which was filled with trolls pumping out this information and it had you know it even had a clear structure on the first floor where it worked they would write articles with a .ua .ua url to make it look like the articles were printed it were were published in ukraine as opposed to st petersburg twisting the facts about the ukraine war the second floor were meme makers who would post memes around the place in support of kremlin policy the third floor were quote unquote ukrainian and quote unquote american bloggers and the ukrainian inverted commas bloggers would uh, would say, oh, there's no electricity in Kiev, the kindergartens, the children don't have food, whereas the American bloggers, the supposed American bloggers, would say that America supported Putin and that Ukraine was full of fascists. And on the fourth floor were the big boys and girls, the uh, social media trolls who would go on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and The Contacter, which is Russian's version of Facebook, and troll and spam and post and do everything they could to push the Kremlin narrative. So it was literally a house of lies.
0: And talk a little bit about how effective this is, and and does it matter? Because the volume makes up for some of the specificity.
1: And you're absolutely right. Again, I mean, we have this belief, uh, you know, I always say that Russians are all chess-playing grandmasters thinking 17 moves ahead, when in fact, a lot of the stuff they do is very clumsy. I mean, Vitaly talks about how he was told to just spam any page with stuff on Russia-Ukraine. So he was, you know, posting to, to, to Facebook pages or groups it had nothing to do with politics. And, you know, his profiles would get taken down, but they just gave him more SIM cards because you need a SIM card to register an account. And he just registered more. But I think Russia's goal here is you throw everything but the kitchen sink at something, and if just 20% of it sticks, that's a success. And look, with the tech hearings, we kind of see this. They say that Russian ads reached... Are, you know, 20, 126 million people now, we're 100, which is almost the amount of people that voted in the election. Now, did they affect or change 126 million people's minds? Of course not. Nowhere near. But it, let's say even 1% were changed, you know, for the election of the most powerful person on the planet. That's very serious. That does make a difference. Even if 99% of your efforts are failing out of targeting 126 million people, you get 100000 or something to change their mind because of this or that, you know, especially in a swing state, you look at, you know, in fact, what it came down to for a Trump win, then who knows how effective it may have been.
0: The other aspect of this is that unlike real warfare, there's no downside in failure. Yeah. I,
1: I mean, there is, in the sense, when your goal becomes political. You know, uh, look, it's like I, I gave you the example of Putin's goal in uh, Ukraine was not to militarily defeat Ukraine, but to get Eastern Ukrainians to subscribe to a particular narrative. Now, I spoke to U.S. and British soldiers in the war in Afghanistan, and they said in the end, the goal became not to militarily defeat the Taliban, but to convince the local population not to join them. And that is a political goal. So where Clausewitz once said war is the continuation of politics by other means, what you now see is war as armed politics. So when that happens, if your narrative fails, then there is a big downside, as you saw in Israel during 2014's Protective Edge, when in the end, the Israeli narrative was simply unable to compete with the Palestinian counter-narrative, and it lost. So there's a downside in that sense. But in terms of, you know, pumping out propaganda on social media, all you're doing is paying a few trolls. So in that sense, if you lose, you know, I suppose, you know, it's not like you've lost 100 men, you know, in battle.
0: The the interesting question is what is the counter to this? Is it counter narrative countering in social media? I'm not sure we've ever seen a clear-cut battle of social media versus social media in this in this world in this landscape we're talking about.
1: Well, we have. In my book I talk about Alberto Fernandez who was head of the State Department division tasked with countering ISIS propaganda with with, you know, with narratives of its own. And quite frankly, as you said, we lost. We were hopelessly outmanned. There were, three, you know, there was 15 of us dealing with thousands of pro ISIS Twitter accounts, and we could not offer an equally, you know, ISIS was offering a narrative saying, "Come, come and join us. Come and be part of something. Come and be a part of a caliphate." We were saying, "No, stop. Don't go. Don't go." They had a positive narrative. We had a negative narrative. There was only ever going to be one winner. Plus, we were damned by what we were, essentially the American government. Because if you're a young, disaffected Muslim, the last person or the last entity on earth you're going to listen to is the American government. So it has been tried, and it's, and, and, and it's been, and, you know, we have failed. And this is where you see that democracies are at a disadvantage to dictatorships. Because when I spoke to Alberto Fernandez, he said, look, we're not Russia. We can't pretend to be who we aren't. We can't have troll farms. We can't do these things, you know. I have no doubt, you know, I mean, obviously I'm not saying that the West does not push out propaganda or anything like that, but if you had a troll farm somewhere in New York, you know, the New York Times would get hold of it, the story, and it would be shut down pretty damn quickly. You know, the troll farms in Russia have been covered, you know, quite a lot now, and, you know, no one they're still carrying on their work. Uh, I mean, the other thing I think is that a lot of culpability lies with the social media companies themselves. Alberto Fernandez was dealing with pro-ISIS accounts that Twitter refused to take down until the beheading of the journalist James Foley, and then they started to take them down. So they, Because ultimately, people think social media, we talk about platforms, which is, you know, the word has a very neutral connotation. This idea of a neutral space, we can all go on and have a chat. But ultimately, social media companies are not neutral; they 're capitalist enterprises designed to make money, which is entirely fair enough and their product is us, and what they want is first of all, they want as many users as possible so they don 't want to kick people off their platforms and secondly, they want to keep us on their platforms for as long as possible, and they do that through the use of algorithms so that they can essentially target adverts to us. So I think that social media companies have a lot of culpability we 've seen it already with the tech hearings. I think self-policing is not working because there is Look, they have a default libertarian free speech model, which is absolutely correct. Free speech is sacrosanct and, you know, it should be respected. But there is a difference between free speech, which is legal, and incitement to violence, which is illegal. And there is too much of that going on on Facebook, Twitter and all the on all the platforms. And also the social media companies are going to have to they're going to I think some form of legislative intervention is going to have to come. Because self-policing hasn't worked, and they're only reluctantly changing.
0: And one wonders, though, what that looks like in in a democratic system, in a, in a system in which free speech is arguably so important, and yet looking at something, looking at a product, Facebook or Twitter or what have you, that is antithetical to the very idea of democracy.
1: Absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's antithetical to the idea of the nation-state, you know, because it's by its nature transnational, um, you know they they 're not you know social media platforms, and bear in mind we 're talking about Facebook, which has two billion people, has a bigger population than china uh they are you know they, they are they are not built you know their architecture is anti nation state i 'm not saying they 're going to destroy the nation state but uh they are hugely hugely disruptive and yes, I mean, what does it look like is very complicated because also you don 't want to. You don't want to, you know, persecute them to such a degree that you start affecting free speech. But I think it's I think, you know, certainly if if, you know, if hate stuff, if hate stuff, if jihadist content, if Nazi content is being kept on sites, government should have the powers to find them heavily. And I think you'll find that as a business, they'll start going down a pretty, you know, a lot more rapidly than they are now. And that is not happening at the moment. The government will have to step in at some point, I believe, because the Facebook, the uh, social media companies are just not going to do it themselves. And they haven't done so far, not really, not to the degree necessary.
0: What is the cutting edge of all of this? Where is the leading edge? If, if there is no intervention, if this keeps going on, where does it lead in your view? I think it
1: leads to more instability, greater division, greater chance of conflict, greater disruption in politics. I mean, we're seeing this already. Donald Trump would not have been possible without Twitter. With Obama, you remember his speeches. How many speeches of Donald Trump do you remember? I mean, the only thing you remember is him in a speech mocking a disabled reporter. What you remember are Donald Trump's tweets. And what is, it's slightly chicken and egg, but what we have to understand is that social media has emerged, coincidentally, at a great time of crisis in the West. And we can trace it in a linear fashion. In 2003... Our politicians took us to war in Iraq on a lie. Essentially, there were no mass weapons of mass destruction, so the political class was discredited. Then, in two thousand and eight, the banks of the banking establishment brought the great recession. So the financial establishment was discredited. Then came the Snowden revelations, and all the people we thought were protecting us turned out to be spying on us. So the security establishment was discredited. And uh, you combine this with longer-term declining standards of trust in the media, and you go from politics to finance to intelligence to media. All the great pillars of the establishment have been discredited. So what this has led to is the rise of demagogues, uh, be it Gert Wilders in Holland, Marine Le Pen uh, in France, Nigel Farage in Britain, and, you know, obviously the ultimate culmination of this, Donald Trump in, in, in the United States. So we have this greatly destabilizing technology uh, combined with a period of great political instability. So I think, put it this way, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better.
0: I mean, in, in that sense, it is a self-perpetuating problem because the more hmm. it destabilizes, the harder it is to deal with
1: absolutely absolutely which is why i'm gloomy about the about the future but i mean if we look at history at every major advancement of information technology has brought great destabilization so we look at the printing press uh and you know then what happened was the gutenberg bible and bibles could be printed in the vernacular in the language of local countries so the catholic church no longer became the sole mediator of the text between the people uh, between, I mean, between the texts and the people, and the wars of religion followed. Uh, if we look at, in 1920, nineteen twenties saw the mass expansion of TV and radio. A decade later in the 30s, Hitler and Mussolini used these new information technologies and war followed. Now, I'm not saying war is going to come. What I am saying is that at each great advancement of information technology, uh, a period of destabilization results, and we are now... Essentially, in the Wild West days, still of social media, there's still relatively new technologies. And, you know, we, you know, people, I mean, what you say, on, you know, you can't call someone a murderer or a rapist or a this. On, in a newspaper, you get sued without evidence, but you can do it on Twitter or Facebook. So there's so many things to be worked out. Uh, we're still in the, very much the Wild West phase. And I think things are going to continue to be unstable for quite a
0: while. Another part of it is, you know, we talk about this, and you talk about it even from the title of the book, about this being a new form of warfare. What happens when this kind of destabilization generates real warfare, physical warfare, hot warfare, and then how these two things work together?
1: Well, I mean, I worry, you know, I talk about that in the book, because I worry that, essentially, in 1914, no one really wants to go to war. But leaders became so boxed in by their rhetoric that in the end, they had no choice. They they risked losing their positions. And, you know, the more I saw, um, you know, Russian propaganda talk about Ukrainian fascists, the more I saw Russians going, yes, yes, we have to kill them and blah, blah, blah. You look at China in the South China Sea um, and, you know, they, they, they really they have armies of paid bloggers. And you rile people up, and their population then demands more and more action in the Chaos China Sea. So there comes a point where you wonder that maybe a China or a Russia or a Iran might become boxed in by their own rhetoric and forced into making, you know, into a war they don't want or, or risk losing so much face to their, you know, that their administration could be threatened. So I think, you know, that is dangerous. I think that that's, you know, a possibility, hopefully still a slim one. And, you know, once the hot war erupts, uh, with propaganda, you know, its ability, its scope, its range cubed, if not more, then, you know, uh, the war will be, you know, even harder to stop, compromise will be even harder to find, and conflict is likely to last for much, much longer.
0: And finally, now that uh, the war is not in 140 characters, but 280, does that make any difference?
1: I mean, look, I mean, okay, before you could insult people in two sentences, now you can do it in four. <laughs> it makes no difference. Uh you know, if they changed it to, you know, well, if they changed it to a lot more, no one would use Twitter anymore. But not really. Now you can just be slightly
0: more rude to people. David Patrick-Erikos, his book is War in 140 Characters, How Social Media is Reshaping Conflict in the 21st Century. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Thank
1: you very much for the time. I greatly enjoyed it. Thank you. And
0: thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.